So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5 this morning, uh, the first 12 verses, and it is uh, very, very fitting for what's going on in our world and in our, in our community and in what we're kind of grappling with. Uh, I don't know if you noticed that uh, it seemed that every song that we sang talked about turmoil. Uh, a couple of them talked about us um, kind of needing Christ in the middle of the storm, uh, that he is there. He's the Jesus, the lover of my soul in the midst of trouble, not after trouble uh, resolves, but in the middle of it. Uh, and so what does the blessing of the kingdom look like? What does it look like for God uh, to have his kingdom come on earth, for Jesus to be king? I was reading one tweet uh, by Tim Keller, and he said, most people want Jesus as a consultant, not as king. And, uh, and so that was, seemed very fitting for us. Uh, but what, in what way does Jesus bring blessing? In what way does that work for us as God's people uh, and so we're going to look at a very familiar passage, uh, and it's the beginning of what, the section in Matthew that's called the Sermon on the Mount. So this would be kind of the first recorded teaching that Jesus brings publicly. And uh, so Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12, would you stand as we just, uh, again, want to hear from God. He's speaking, and uh, we want uh, to submit to him. Matthew writes, seeing the crowds, he, and that's Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall, be, shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when, you, and when others revile you and persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray. Uh, God, give us a picture of what blessing really looks like. What is it that we would be blessed as your people? God, uh, thank you for this, uh, for this sermon, for these words. God, what does it look like for your people to be citizens in your kingdom, not citizens of this world? Father, I pray that the, the distinctiveness of your transformative work in our lives would be evident. Father, I pray that it would uh, just ring out from us as your people. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. They have a nice house, a nice car, great kids, good job. They are so blessed. He's a talented athlete. He makes good grades. Uh, the girls think he's really cute. He is so blessed. She is such a creative writer. She's enjoyable to talk with. She's popular in school. She is so 
blessed. In all reality, there are blessings in those things, but none of those things would come to them without the gracious hand of God. And so there is a blessing there. Yet, what about the guy who, because he loves Jesus, is locked in prison? All of his close friends now hate him. People mention his name with hatred in their voice. He's so blessed? We don't seem to define it that way, but that's how Jesus is speaking. That that one that is in prison, friends now revile him. People mention their, his, his name with hatred. Jesus calls him blessed. It seems backwards. It's, it doesn't seem to make sense according to our typical assessment of blessing. But in a sense, it shouldn't because the kingdom of God is distinct distinct from the world around it, and the people of the kingdom ought to be distinct from people around them. There's this aspect of kingdom distinctiveness that Jesus is going to speak to in this entire sermon. Chapters 5, 6, and 7 all kind of combine into one, uh, what we call a pericope. That means like one section of, of, the, of, God, uh, of this uh, chapter in the, in, uh, of Matthew. It's one set of teaching. And so what are the characteristics of God's people that are part of his kingdom? You'll notice much uh, in the Sermon on the Mount that it mirrors the Ten Commandments. Uh, then other portions of the Old Testament law, you'll hear don't murder, don't commit adultery, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. So, but the purpose of the Old Testament law was God telling his people how to live, and, and Todd's going to unpack that in, in much greater detail next week. Uh, they, they, these Old Testament laws, they were, dis, were telling the people how to be distinct from the other nations around them. But Jesus picks up this idea of the law, and he picks up the same topic of distinctiveness. What should God's people look like? He's not saying toss out the Old Testament law and let's take on a new one. He builds on the Old Testament law, and then he interprets it with some staggering implications. It's not that he negates it. He presses it to full measure. In a sense, we say that God is holy. God is set apart. God is completely other than anything else in all creation. And his people ought to be different from the world around them as well. Why? Because God is set apart. God's people ought to be set apart. Uh, they, they be, why? Because they'll view the world differently. They'll value different things. Uh, they, you know, we ought to pursue different things. John Stott, one of the great writers of the last century uh, in Preachers, he said, for the, he says, For in so far uh, as the church is conformed to the world, and the two communities appear to the onlooker to be merely two versions of the same thing. The church is contradicting its true identity. He's saying if we look so much like the world that we are indistinguishable from, indistinguishable from the world, we have missed entirely the distinctiveness of the kingdom. We ought to be different we, there, might, there ought to be a contrast between the way the world carries themselves and the way God's people carry themselves. Not because we are any, any kind of greater or anything like that, but we have different values and we belong to a different kingdom. 
So it's not just come out of, of the world, but it's also that we ought to be, look different than the religious who don't really know Christ. It, it's, there ought to be a distinctiveness among God's people. One of my seminary professors, Dan Doriani, he said it this way. He said, Jesus wanted disciples, not crowds. And so he called a few men to himself. Why? Because he wants people that will look different and distinct from the world. Not just people that would uh, be around him and kind of like hear his teaching and then go back to normal. There ought to be a distinctiveness to us because we are citizens of a different kingdom. And what does that look like? Is, is, uh, and uh, this was one of those sermons that probably could be a series unto itself. Uh, so we'll kind of do some treetops and uh, we'll pick up other kingdom distinctive, uh, distinctive characteristics as we go through the next many weeks. But there, there takes a radical view of blessing in order to be distinct. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Nine times in these verses, Jesus talks about those who are blessed. And if you're new uh, and don't, aren't familiar with the King James, that's why we're saying blessed. It's kind of a historical uh, pronunciation of that word. Um, and uh, so Jesus uses the word blessed nine times. And this section of the Sermon on the Mount is called the Beatitudes. And why is it called the Beatitudes? Is the Latin word for blessing uh, is, is in the root word for Beatitudes. Uh, I looked it up, how to pronounce it. Uh, uh-oh. Uh, <laughs> I even wrote it out phonetically and I can't do it. Uh, beatus, okay? Hence, Beatitudes uh, from the Latin. The Greek usage of this word uh, for blessedness describes the blessedness of the Greek gods. The New Testament written in Greek, this word for blessed is speaking of the, the place of the Greek gods. Now, it's fictitious, but that's what culture was using that word for at that time. Later uh, in Greek culture, the word was used to describe the freedom that the rich had from normal cares and worries of life. They were blessed. Why? Because they were free of normal cares and worries. And all the writers of antiquity took a, took a shot on what their opinion of blessedness looked like. The same word in Greek could also be translated happiness. But I want to caution you and tap the brakes on it, it's not happy is the, are the poor in spirit or happy are those who mourn. There's a blessing uh, and that endures and comes with that. You know, Homer uh, the, the, identified this word of blessing uh, with wealth, the possession of good things, uh, it, you know, the implication or even implies a, a, a good wife and great kids. Others think of it, um, Euripides kind of calls it that of power and fame and of glory. And, and all the writers go on and on and on describing blessing with either wealth or power or some kind of status or something good that, that kind of delineated them from the rest of Greek culture. Well, is that what biblical blessing looks like? I think Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. The distinctiveness of the kingdom is opposite of what, God, what um, writers of the day are using the word as. They're saying, you've reached or achieved a certain status, therefore, 
before you're blessed. Jesus is saying, no, 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 it's, an, it's something internal. It's something internal, a joy that becomes external, that we, uh, that we praise God, that we sing his songs of praise, that we, we praise him because God alone is the source of our blessing. It's not that the blessing is found in the, the, the material goodness or uh, power or status, therefore we're blessed. We are blessed because we know God. God is our blessing and God alone. And he, if he sees fit, will bring those tangible things that we would call good in this world. Those things aren't evil. Wealth by itself is not evil. Uh, being able to have... have um, you know, kind of the ability to, to govern or to manage, that's not evil. But when we say we have those things and therefore we're blessed, Jesus is turning that on its head. Jesus saying, in me and me alone is your blessing. Now, the, the first beatitude and the eighth beatitude, um, uh, the, the, the first blessing and the eighth blessing, all both have the ending, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So in biblical teaching, if there's something that starts a section and ends a section, it's kind of saying, hey, everything in the middle kind of goes together. Uh, and it's like a bookend. And, um, but what's interesting is the ninth beatitude uh, got like, like the eighth one got some extra toss in. Um, I don't think it's like, you know, the, the, tack, the tack on or the footnote. I just think it's the reality that that one needed extra explanation. So what does blessing look like? Well, first off, it is not the health and wealth gospel. The idea that you come to Jesus and you make lots of money, you'll be wildly successful, and you'll never get sick. That's what Jesus promises. So come to him, everybody, and get the best life you could ever want. Now, there are preachers who preach that. That is not the gospel that Jesus preaches. Jesus speaks to the poor, the ones who mourn, the ones who hunger, talks to the persecuted twice, uh, those who need, are, are need of resolving conflict and making peace, those who are reviled. Now, who wants in? That's the promise of the gospel. Who wants in? But here's the thing. None of us would sign up for those circumstances. But Jesus says that it's in the middle of that that you find blessing because you don't define your life according to what you have, but according to him, the king. And so blessing is, is less about uh, what we have, and it's all about uh, how God blesses us in the middle of those things. Uh, the... Um, theological lexicon of the new testament said it this way that they are starving and weeping more than scorned they're exploited by the powerful and the rich who prey on them who oppress them who persecute them it is those afflicted ones that the holy spirit promises happiness consolation and satisfaction and our world says huh because it ought to because the distinctives of the kingdom ought to confound our world. 
What's interesting is that this, this idea of blessing, and read through the book of Matthew and actually through the rest of the New Testament, blessed are those who are welcomed to the wedding feast of the Lamb. Blessed are those who are revealed the things of God as he talks to Peter. Blessing comes to God's people, and the last blessing that Jesus pronounces is in John chapter 20. John chapter 20, verse 29, he brings us into the hope of blessing. It's not just his disciples, but it's us too. Jesus said to him, you, uh, have you believed because you have seen? Obviously, he's speaking to uh, doubting Thomas after he came back. He believed because he saw Jesus. Jesus says this, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. That would be every one of us in this, in this room every one of us that has come to trust in Christ. We have not seen, but blessed are those who have not seen yet believe. That's the last and the final blessing that, or that word that Jesus uses. He, we are ushered into that same hope. And so for us to be kind of countercultural, for us to be distinctive from our world, there has to be a, a radical view of blessing, but also a reoriented understanding of need. And so notice the, the first three characteristics that Jesus calls blessed. Uh, verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit. Verse 4, blessed are those who mourn. Verse 5, blessed are the meek. And so if you think about these things, if you kind of like do the sum total of the words of poor in spirit, mourning, and meek, there's a sense of neediness that just immediately hits the page, right? Uh, Craig Blomberg, he would say that the idea of being poor in spirit uh, is uh, not poor faith, not just this sense where we lack faith, but to acknowledge one's spiritual powerlessness and bankruptcy apart from Jesus. So if you are one who can recognize your spiritual powerlessness and, and bankruptcy without Christ, you would be considered poor in spirit. You know, one, uh, one author uh, from years back, those who feel their spiritual need, Jesus calls those blessed. It's kind of backwards. We kind of, we celebrate the best and the brightest, the most talented, the ones that don't struggle. Jesus is saying the ones who profoundly understand their need, they're the ones that will be blessed. The, uh, the, the theological lexicon of, uh, went on to say, their hearts are open to the word of God, the work of God, because their miserable condition makes them appreciate spiritual values, which is the only real sense of wealth. Poor in spirit. Well, today, uh, the president declared a national day of prayer, and he's not the first president to do that. Uh, in some sort of emergency or some sort of dire situation for our country. In 1863, President Lincoln designated April 30th as a day of national humiliation, fasting, and prayer. He says this, It is the duty of nations as well as of men who owe their dependence upon the overruling power of God to confess their sins and transgressions in humble sorrow, yet with assured hope that genuine repentance will lead to pardon and mercy, and to recognize the sublime truth announced in the Holy Scriptures and proven by a history 
that those nations only are blessed whose God is the Lord. The awful calamity of civil war, he says, which now desolates the land may be but a punishment inflicted upon us for our presumptuous sins. To the needful end of our national reformation as a whole people, intoxicated, this is in the 1800s, intoxicated with unbroken success. We have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace. Too proud to pray to the God that made us. We have grown in numbers. We've grown in wealth and in power as no other nation has grown, but we have forgotten God. Blessed are the poor in spirit because they desperately see their need. They recognize their spiritual poverty. And much like Lincoln was calling the country to Jesus, those were really just a recitation of Jesus' call to repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. The poor in spirit recognize that. They also find themselves in mourning, grieving over their own sin, grieving over the sin that pervades our culture, grieving over loss, societal evil, oppression, grieving over those things grieving over what's wrong with our world. But blessed, let me actually hear the irony of happy are those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn. Why? Well, it's one thing to recognize your spiritual brokenness. It's another to be overwhelmed by it, to be contrite by it, to be tearful over it. Is there really anything more beautiful than God's people being brought to tears over their own sin. And then crying out to God and to his people for forgiveness. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who grieve. And blessed are the meek. Our understanding of need, we, we kind of move away from it. But who are the meek? The meek are the gentle, the calm, the, the, those with a soothing disposition. And Jesus was even called... Uh, the, the one that is humble and meek, when he came in uh, to Jerusalem uh, at the triumphal entry, in Matthew 21, quotes uh, Zechariah 9, that your king comes to you humble. It's this word, meek. Humble, meek, mounted on the foal of a donkey. The donkey was the mount of the poor. A horse was the mount of a warrior. And Jesus comes in low and humble and meek. He's gentle, he's calm, he's of a soothing disposition. And who will, who will, what will the meek inherit is the earth. A gentle person doesn't exert their rights. A meek person doesn't strive after their own well-being and push others aside. You could say that a meek person won't get what they want in life because they won't push everybody out of the way to get it. But Jesus promises that the meek will inherit the earth. Psalm 37 verse 11 uh, is, is really, uh, you know, this is what's quoted. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Rather than defiantly going after what you want, but yet meekly living life and trust in the promise 
of God. We have to understand what need looks like so that we can recognize and not reject being poor in spirit, recognizing our spiritual poverty, not, not, not reject the idea of mourning and grieving over our sin and what's broken in this world, but also being gentle among. John Stott, when he was kind of summarizing all these things, he, he kind of sees this, this spiritual progression of the Beatitudes. The first of acknowledging our complete and utter spiritual bankruptcy. Well, that leads us to mourning over that. And then that leads us, if we are spiritually bankrupt, we can't be high on ourselves. We are immediately humbled. We are meek. But, but this is an interesting question, he says. For what use is it of confessing and lamenting of our sin and of acknowledging the truth about ourselves before both God and man if we leave it there? Is it only to know you're broken, to mourn over it, and even be gentle? He said, no, it goes somewhere. It goes to the next beatitude. And, it, and that gets us to redirected pursuits. So, Because what's the next beatitude is in verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. It's those who seek after the things of God that their hunger would be met. But wealth makes it very different, difficult to enter the kingdom of God. And if we think about that, what do people hunger for? It seems that we, we hunger for a lot of other things in this world rather than that of righteousness. Not that, that worldly wealth is wrong, but when earthly things fill our hearts, what does one want from God, really? Not necessarily anything. Uh, the actor Alan Alda um, for those younger than me, he, he starred in uh, the show MASH, probably one of the most popular TV shows of all time, okay? Alan Alda, he said this, uh, he said, It isn't necessary to be rich and famous to be happy. It's only necessary to be rich. <laughs> of which we, we would push back. Jesus was pushed back on that. And, and really, uh, the reality is that we would see our hunger and being satisfied and being met in all of those different things. Yet I think we're looking for our satisfaction in all of the wrong places. We're looking for meaning. We're looking for peace. We're looking for love. We're looking for reality. But we're looking in all the wrong places for those things. But it's a right pursuit. Seek after and search after the righteous things of God. But what else becomes a pursuit of God's people, and now we're really going to fast forward, is the idea of being merciful, the idea of being pure in heart, the idea of being a peacemaker. You could argue that, uh, that the first four are us in relation to God. The, the last four, and then the tack on of number nine, is us in relationship to each other. Um, kind of uh, maybe heart actions versus uh, that of things that we do. Uh, and, you know, basically for us to be merciful means that we show mercy to somebody else. How do we show mercy? Well, our heart has been humbled, poor in spirit, mourning, and meek, and therefore we actually express what God has done in us to other people. We become merciful 
people. It's not that we earn God's favor by our mercy. We become merciful people because God has been merciful to us. And blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy, and reality, they have already received mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, those who pursue purity. Blessed are the ones who make peace and become peacemakers. And uh, that we have different pursuits. It's not go get as much as you can get to be satisfied. It is give your life away and you will find it. We have different pursuits. And that ought to look different than our world. If anything looks different than our culture, it ought to be that. How do we give ourselves away? When our world says, get everything you can and keep it and hoard it. Run to Walmart and Costco before anybody else does. And get your toilet paper and your hand sanitizer. Because, you know, my mom's CPAP machine runs on distilled water. Right? There was no distilled water uh, in, uh, in Walmart for a few days. And we went in kind of early the, uh, one day. And there was, there was a small rack of distilled water. Well, how much do I buy? Do I buy enough to last my mom so she'll never uh, so she'll never have to want for distilled water? Or should I take what I think we need and then let somebody else be able to breathe at night? What is it for us to give our lives away? What is it for us to pursue purity and peace uh, and, and have different pursuits? What's great is is the passive sense of all of these things that is promised. Okay, this is called a divine passive. Okay, notice, blessed are these people, um, uh, especially starting in in, uh, the morning ones, for they shall be comforted, uh, they shall inherit, they shall be satisfied, they shall receive mercy, they shall see God, they shall uh, be called sons of God. All of those things are not things that we go get. We pursue the things of God so that he can be the one that provides us with the blessing that flows from pursuing his kingdom. We give up our pursuits for his. And it's the divine work of God that brings all of those different things. Yet they're not always uh, future tense because the first two— Theirs is the kingdom of heaven now, present tense. We taste it, but not in its fullness. There are things that we know now, but not fully, because God has not fully brought those things about. And then we rejoice over the strangest things. I have to say, verses 10, 11, and 12 to our culture make no sense. And quite honestly, I think God's people struggle with them. But at least we have a theological basis to sort through them. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you, which means speak terribly about you, and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. That's a blessing. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. If you get treated like that, count yourself in line with Isaiah and Jeremiah and Hosea, who everybody just trashed. Why? Because they counted knowing God of more value than having a good name on earth. 
into a habitual people pleaser? That is crazy talk, right? No, 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 no. I'm going to get everybody to think great of me. And Jesus is saying, blessed are those who people speak ill of and they have to make stuff up on in order to speak bad of you, just like they did him. And there's this sense where uh, he, speak, he says it twice. Blessed are the pure persecuted. Blessed are those who, who are persecuted. Because what are we going to hunger for in number four? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They'll be satisfied, hence, with righteous things. And then why are you being persecuted? Verse, verse whichever, I flipped the page. Verse 10. You hunger and thirst for righteousness. You're satisfied with righteous things. Verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. The very thing you hunger for is going to get you persecuted. And God's going to give it to you. Our hope and our blessedness cannot be found in the things of this world, even people's opinion of us. Why? Because we serve a king who, who they hated as well. Here's a sobering thought. If you're not enduring any type of persecution in your life, and I'm not even talking flogging and stoning, if you're not enduring any kind of persecution in your life, does your life look any different than the world around you? Jesus says there ought to be a kingdom distinctiveness because we are expressing all these things that are the character of God. Do people see a difference in you and in me? Let's pray. God, uh, use your word in the midst of really a, a cultural crisis of this virus. Father, I pray that we would be distinct, that we would be people that have a hope that endures beyond good circumstances and healing and health. God, have us uh, keep our eyes on you. Help us uh, be the ones who recognize that our fullness is in Christ and in him alone. Amen.